Michael Osterlink here. I'm with Ben Parr. He is the author of the new book, Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention. Ben is an award-winning journalist, entrepreneur, investor, and expert on attention. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Dominant Fund, a venture capital firm, was co-editor and editor-at-large of Mashable, and served as a columnist for CNET. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Fantastic myself. I uh, loved a recent presentation you just gave on your new book, Captivology. It, it captured my attention. Tell us a little about your, yourself and what led you to actually write this book. Oh, about myself. It's so... Ah. All right, let's, let's do this. So, <laughs> because, you know, when you're talking about yourself, it gets, it gets all weird. But, so I... You know, I'm from small town, middle of nowhere, Illinois, Princeton, Illinois, you know, and grew up with the cows, the corn, the soybeans, pigs, you know, <laughs> but I moved to Chicago for Northwestern education, and I set me on this path of entrepreneurship and building things and building great things. And I studied science and human culture, how science affects history, society, technology, all multiple disciplines and how it impacts our daily lives. Uh, that helped lead me eventually to what basic what led to my career, which is Mashable. And back in 2008, 2009, I joined Mashable. And you know, I started out as a writer, and then I became associate editor, and then I became co-editor. And so Mashable, the technology site, I ran West Coast as co-editor and wrote 2,448 or some kind of ridiculous number of articles. So let me actually have you step back. Uh, your interdisciplinary approach to studying, to learning, it's kind of unique. It, it's something I think is actually necessary for the 21st century and the information age. But what led you in your personal life to say, wow, I need to really study these different fields of human knowledge and integrate them together in a bigger picture? You know, when I first went to Northwestern, my, I wanted to be an astronomer. And I, I went in for physics. But what I realized is that I'd rather be on the management end of science than the research end. I want to be the one hoping promote the science and getting more kids interested in science education and STEM education and promoting research and, you know, maybe even making some of these scientists, you know, celebrities. We only have like two or three. There should be dozens, hundreds. They're, they're real, the real celebrities. And so I just realized this was where my strength really lied, and it kind of led to science and human culture, which I had been interested in from the beginning. It's a very unique major over at Northwestern. There's not a lot of people who even know about it, but it really, the multidisciplinary just gives you this kind of broader view of how science works and the history of science and how we've viewed it over the course of generations and centuries. And that's really kind of informed my thinking, how I write, how I uh, analyze things how I pick startups. Why attention? What grabbed your attention about with attention? Because attention is the fundamental currency of the modern economy. Nothing can be done without attention. If you're a teacher, you need the attention of your students. If you're an entrepreneur, you need the attention of your users and of investors. If you're a politician, you need the attention of voters and of donors. Attention is fundamental to everything we do, but so very few people understand how it works and how to utilize that knowledge. And as a result, you know, we live in this world that's filled with information and exponentially growing, and more and more great ideas, more and more great people are slipping through the cracks. And Captivology teaches people how that science works so that they, one, won't fall through the cracks, but also, two, know how their attention works and defend your own attention so you know why a certain story stays in the news, why a certain thing captivated your interest. 
it's changed the way I viewed the world, at least. It seems like your book is for a wide, broad audience, for anyone basically who wants to grab others' attention. You mentioned politicians, you mentioned scientists, uh, business folks. Um, are there particular people who are, or who are attracted to these ideas originally that, gener- that, that got you thinking, wow, this is something I need to write a book about? I mean, were you approached by people to say, in the political world or in the business world, because you're in the tech world, or other worlds that said, wow, this is something really important to us, you should write about this, or this generate uh, in your own consciousness? It was just more, I didn't want to write a social media book, or a tech book, or a marketing book. Those seemed narrow to me. I wanted to write something broader that had more applicability. Because, I guess maybe it's one of the things you think about in Silicon Valley is maximum impact. How can you have the maximum impact on the most people? How can you scale an idea? And so this is a way of scaling the idea rather than being like, here's how you do a very specific thing. The book is more, here's how a fundamental human process, attention, works regardless of culture, regardless of industry. And then those lessons that you that I teach in the book can be, you apply them and you find the ways to apply them regardless of what you do and what your goal is because attention is fundamental. And that was part of the process for me. You break your book up into various pieces. You have the three stages of attention, which is your first chapter. You have autom- automaticity with triggers, framing trigger, disruptive trigger. Can you just briefly go into three stages of attention and then some of these triggers? Not in great detail because we obviously want people to read the book, <laughs> but as kind of teases to say why people should be reading this book, what they're going to get out of this book. So I discuss in the first chapter how attention works, and I divide it into three stages. Immediate attention, short attention, long attention. Immediate attention is that automatic reaction we have to certain sights and sounds. It's how you jump if someone like, pop! gunshot or something of the sort. It's a defense mechanism. Then I go to short attention when we start consciously focusing on something and how our conscious focus is directly related to our memory systems and how and why we choose certain things over others to pay attention to. But the most important one I talk about is long attention and long-term interest. It's the difference between listening to a Beyonce song on the radio and becoming a fan of Beyonce and joining the Bayhive and going to all our concerts. And your goal as someone who wants to get attention is to walk your audience through all three stages, you know, because it's not enough to have them watch your commercial. You need to turn those your audience into customers, into users, into voters, whatever it may be. It's you got to walk them through those stages. And so I talk about that in much greater detail. And then I talk about seven key psychological triggers that capture attention. And before you get into the triggers, uh, I imagine you did a deep dive on the brain science. I did. Uh, I will have to do more because I didn't want to overload it with uh, the specifics of the the neurology, if only because it's not as... I wanted this book to be very applicable to daily life. Mm -hmm. And so I'd go definite... I go deep into certain aspects of the brain science. Um, I'm going to write follow-ups on some of that stuff because there's so much fascinating research, like less than 10% of my notes ever made into the final version. Wow, that's actually pretty exciting. And now is a great time to be alive because the brain science, you know, it's kind of the kind, kind of the cutting edge. And we're learning so much about the brain and, and I would say the brain-mind, um, not only from Western science, but from, from my interest in the Eastern spiritual systems, meditation and yoga, you know, how to manage particular states of consciousness, how to induce particular states of consciousness. So it's a pretty fascinating time to be alive. It reminds me there was a piece that I never was able to put into into this book where I did, I did a deeper dive into uh, Buddhism meditation and understanding. 
and the kind of level of attention and the brain chemistry is literally different in monks. They're like, they've done research is literally different. And the attention centers of the brain are more active and more activated and more focused. One of the big issues with our modern society, when it comes to attention at least, is that we have divided attention and multitasking. And the research shows that those who label themselves as heavy media multitaskers are the least effective when it comes to completing tasks and accuracy of tasks and getting, in general, getting things done. But this is the world we've created because of all the technology, because of smartphone notifications, that sort of thing. And I'm a huge victim of that. I'm at my phone all the time. But as a result, we've become less productive. So how do you get past that? How do you focus on a single thing? And more importantly, how do you get people to focus on you, the single thing? That's a lot of the discussion. That's, that's awesome. Tell me a little bit about these triggers. So the books, the core is the seven captivation triggers. Is these psychological triggers that capture our attention across all three stages of attention, um, regardless of culture, regardless. It's fundamental to human nature. So I talk about things, for example, at the earliest stages, automaticity, and how you know, we have automatic reaction to certain colors, certain sights, certain sounds. How, you know, for example, if you're a hitchhiker on the side of the road, and I told you this one a little bit earlier, that red is the best color for especially, and there's literally a French scientist who did a study on this. If you wear red, especially if you're a woman, you're more likely to have someone pull over to pick you up. And it was a difference between 13% and 21%. A huge jump. And there's much, but there's much more detail to the whole thing. Like, here's another fun one. If you give somebody a task and you tell them, think as many creative ways to use a brick. If you just flash in front of them either the Disney logo or the IBM logo, people will have on average about 20 to 30% more creative ideas just by seeing the Disney logo for fractions of a second or even just a few seconds. Because of these automatic associations, it changes the way in which we pay attention. You know, and even down to like judges give harsher sentences. The science shows this later in the day because of decision fatigue. So if you're, for the audience out there, if you're about to be sentenced for a crime, you want to be the first one in the docket or the one right after lunch. Seriously. That's how much like we know about the brain and how dramatically we change the way in which we make decisions. But I talk about longer term stuff as well, right? Well, and before you go on, I'm, I'm just triggered a thought of me upon evolutionary biology. I would imagine that you've you've done some research um, on how we've evolved over time to respond to these kind of things. It's not unique to us in the 21st century. These are things that we've we've developed over time. I would guess. Is so my my argument is kind of like this: when we were hunter gatherers and way back in the day, our attention was already switching all the time, right? Because we were scanning the environment to find one of two things. Either threats, like a saber-toothed tiger, or food, you know, maybe berries, or a, a giant mutant squirrel. I don't know what they ate back then. But you have those sorts of things, and we had that kind of attention to shift. The attention system is pretty much the same, but the environment is drastically changed. I don't know about you, but when I walk out the hall, I'm not worried about saber-toothed tiger mauling me. But we still have that kind of uh, automatic attention system that goes specifically for novelty. And so what has replaced it? Smartphone notifications. They activate the dopamine loop and make it so that we look for these smartphone notifications because they provide new information. We are biased towards new information. Smartphone notifications are nothing but new information. And so that's part of the reason why we're constantly looking at it because we can absorb new information all the time faster than maybe we even can 
in daily human interactions, which is maybe why people look at their phones even when they're with their friends. Hmm. Quite interesting. Um, a couple more triggers. Let's talk about the reward trigger as an example. Sounds good. Um, and so everyone thinks dopamine, most people think of dopamine as this chemical that creates pleasure in the brain. It doesn't actually. And I l interviewed the leading researcher in this subject, Dr. Kent Barrett at the University of Michigan. And what he discovered, what he did actually, was a study where he had mice and he pulled the dopamine out of these mice to see what would happen. And what he learned was these mice with no dopamine could still feel pleasure. Give a give them sugar water and they would still find it tasty. What happened though was they lost all motivation. Mm. And then they were so demotivated in fact that all, pretty much all of them died. And that's because we need, dopamine creates motivation. It actually creates a wanting response in the mind and not a liking response. Liking is created by opioids in the brain. And so what your goal with dopamine, dopamine is the key to attention because when we desire something, we pay attention to that, that reward and the things that will help us achieve that reward. When we, you know, are craving, let's say, a Big Mac, then we're going to pay attention to the Big Mac and the things that will help us get to the Big Mac, the car, the drive, the McDonald's, these different key factors. And it's because your goal as someone trying to capture attention is to activate the dopamine loop and make people desire the reward more. And I talk a lot about how you deliver rewards because everyone typically uses incentives, right? Do this and I'll give you this. And that's the least effective type. Out of all the types, it works, but it's the least effective. Post-action rewards are much more effective, for example. When somebody takes an action you want them to take, and then after the fact, as a surprise, you provide them with a, re a reward. And that creates much more attention, much more uh, memory of the situation, and makes delights people more. That, that's not personality specific? It's global as human beings? If you have dopamine, wow. then it's global. Nice. And so, in general, and they had a study, literally what they would do is they'd spray either water or citrus into people's mouths. And what they found was that people were more delighted and paid more attention when they could not predict the order in which water citrus came. Because citrus was supposed to be the reward. Mm -hmm. And so when they couldn't predict it, they were more delighted. They were more paying attention. They would remember the, ta the test and the task more. And so this is, there's a lot of interesting things about the body's reward system. Uh, different trigger, the reputation trigger. One of the other triggers in my book. I talk a lot just as one aspect, experts, and how we pay attention to experts almost irreverently. And there's a good reason for that. If a doctor tells me I have some kind of disease, I should probably listen to the doctor. But um, what the research shows is that when we're listening to an expert, the decision-making centers of their brain almost basically literally turn off. It's as if we've offloaded the processing power of our brain to the expert. And in fact, out of all the types, and there's a, a survey that Edelman, the giant PR giant, does every year on trust. And what they find every year is that the most trustworthy spokesperson is always an out as an expert, either technical or an academic expert, more than CEOs, which rank near the bottom, and more than government officials, which are literally on the bottom of the survey. And so when you're trying to get attention for something, harnessing the power of expertise, whether making sure you're seen as the expert and you are the expert, or bringing in an expert or and to come and endorse or to help talk about what you're doing is much more powerful than anything else, much more powerful than trotting out your CEO. Your CEO is not credible to anybody, not generally at least. Interesting. So Ben, where can people learn more about your work in general and specifically find your book, Captivology? So if you want to find Captivology, if we've captivated your interest, it is <laughs> captivology.com, C-A-P-T-I-V-O-L-O-G-Y.com. 
You can find it on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, all the major bookstores. It's everywhere. Uh, if you want to follow me and my stuff, I'm Ben Parr, B-E-N-P-A-R-R. -R. I'm at Ben Parr on every social network, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Plus. if you know people still use that, oh, Instagram, all of the others. And BenParr.com, where I do some writing, and I post some of my recent writing and a lot of my recent appearances. Thanks, Ben.